Good morning. If you have a Bible, open to Mark chapter 1, please. That's where we'll be this morning. Yes, the whole chapter of Mark chapter 1. And while you're opening there, I want to explain that this sermon represents the beginning of a series of sermons in the Gospel of Mark. Now, typically, and I'm chief among this line of thinking, we break the Gospels up uh, and even other books of the Bible into such small and independent uh, sections that we tend to miss the forest for the trees. And while that's not wrong in and of itself to do that, because there's a lot covered in the Gospels and in other books, sometimes it's good to zoom out and see the forest that there is. And the forest, in this case, is the argument for which Mark has written this Gospel. Because Mark wrote not a series of disorganized memories that he compiled of Jesus' life, but rather he wrote a cohesive argument. Namely, that Jesus is the long-expected king of his people. And he has a unique call, a unique campaign, and a unique coronation that can only belong to this Savior who bears the name of Jesus. Well, why do I tell you all of that approach work? Why do I lay that out for you? Well, there's a few reasons, really. But, but one is because I intend to read through all of our text right here this morning. And I want to prepare you for that. This is 45 verses that we'll be reading through. And as I read it, I would like for you to pay attention and to enjoy it for the forest and not for the trees, to take the high-level flow of the argument, that is, the flow of the text and what it captures overall. Does that make sense? Great. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptizing or was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this, a new teaching with authority? He commanded, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they were told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gospel introduction to Jesus, to the one who would come to deliver his people from their sins. Father, I pray that we would see your glory and the glory of the one whom you sent as we study this passage. Father, would you convict us of our need to be baptized into this work of the gospel? Would you submit us to the one whom you sent, the true son of God, Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to ask you to draw your mind back, if you could, about a decade ago. Can you do that? Say 2009, somewhere in there. You might remember that was right about the time the first iPhone came out. If you're a Marvel fan, we only knew of Iron Man at that point. It's a big deal. But one important facet of that era was the strange occurrence of Chuck Norris facts that raged throughout the Internet. Do you remember Chuck Norris facts? The strangest thing. 
people would write these ridiculous claims about the things that Chuck Norris could do. Now, if you don't know Chuck Norris, martial arts expert, movie star, all that kind of stuff, I don't think the claims are true. I'm not sure. If they are, I may be in danger. But here's a few of the more famous ones. When, when Chuck Norris does a push-up, for example, he doesn't push himself up. He pushes the earth down. <laughs> that's a Chuck Norris fact. Another fact about Chuck Norris, do you know how many push-ups Chuck Norris can do? Answer, all of them. Another facet of Chuck Norris is that Chuck Norris can take a group photo by himself. That's unusual. But here's the one I want to zero in on. When Chuck Norris jumps into the water, Chuck Norris does not get wet. The water gets Chuck Norris. I guess the implication is that he carries so much Chuck Norris-ism that rather than being affected even by water, Chuck Norris affects water himself. Well, sometimes our world and our imprint can be so big, at least in our own estimation, that the gospel tends to be affected the same way. That is, rather than getting wet with the gospel when you jump into it, the gospel gets you'd. What do I mean? Well, I mean the gospel becomes just another accessory of your life. Not so much a life changer or the grand scale that we see in Mark, but a thing that you look at from time to time as another facet of who you are. What happens when you jump into the gospel? You personally. Do you get changed by the gospel? Are you baptized into it? Does it alter your life and the ways that you think? Or does the gospel get changed by who you are? Is it baptized into your culture, destined to conform to your identity? More of an addition to your life than a game changer, leaving you only as really a a Sunday morning gospel believer. See, Mark reveals that the gospel of Jesus Christ In this text is a full immersion of yourself into the victorious work of Christ. And he he implies that anything short of that is no gospel at all and does not result in real transformative power. There's no partial gospel here. We know that in part by the words that we use to describe Jesus work. Take take that word gospel that we throw around so much of the time. Mark introduces us to that word gospel in Mark one, writing the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. But what does the word gospel really mean? What does Mark mean by that word? We throw it around all the time. I believe in the gospel. Have you heard the gospel? We call this book in particular a gospel If we're really sincere about something, we might describe that thing as gospel truth. But what does Mark mean by the word gospel? Why does he choose that word? Well, imagine yourself, this time not ten years ago, but in the first century. Take yourself back. What would that word gospel have meant to you if you lived at that time? Well, if you're a Roman citizen, as you likely would have been if you're reading Mark's account of Jesus' life, in the first century, then you would have heard that word gospel before. That would not have been a new word to you. Perhaps you would remember the familiar scene. The town crier rides in to town and he finds the most prominent place to speak a message, to deliver 
some information, some news, perhaps a city square. And then he proclaims before all the people, gospel, 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 so that everyone can hear. And then after the proclamation of gospel, he announces the military victory of Caesar. Some battle that Caesar has secured victory in to continue his dominion as ruler or to extend that dominion to a new area. And so when Mark introduces his book with the proclamation gospel, he's intentionally announcing as the town crier the victory of Jesus on behalf of his people. The word gospel is a statement of victory. It's not advice, nor is it dependent on what you do with it at all to be true or secure. It's news to be heralded and to be heard. It's an invitation to submit further to the rule of the leadership out of some military victory. And if that gospel has a partial hold, then the victory is not secure and the kingdom is flimsy. Moreover, it is no gospel at all. See, Christ's kingdom is not flimsy, but it is the most secure kingdom ever established because it's built upon the will and the foreknowledge of God himself. Therefore, the gospel that Mark brings us is the news of strong and secure victory under its king. But it requires response because Jesus' victory in his gospel is secure and transformative. See, Mark reveals that the gospel is the victory of Jesus that results in a people being called to follow him. The gospel is the victory of Jesus that results in a people being called to follow him. Well, if you have a bulletin, you can follow along as we outline this this text going over it quickly. But what we see as we advance through it is that gospel reality means at least two things for us. If you have that outline, grab it and follow along. Because number one, Mark reveals that the gospel is not baptized into you. The gospel is not baptized into you. In Mark 1, beginning in verse 4, we see People beginning to come and be baptized by John in the wilderness. People being baptized into this gospel of Jesus. See, that baptism is a symbol of their submission to his gospel rule. That's the difference between merely holding the gospel as a set of intellectual beliefs, things that we hold as fact, and not truly being transformed by those things. It's that submission to the full full effects of gospel rule. See, full immersion in Jesus' work is required to really believe the gospel at the deepest level of our hearts. And I don't mean the outward symbol of baptism that we often participate in here. I'm not debating that practice with you. That's not what's in view here. Set that outward symbol aside for a moment and picture what their baptism in the Jordan means in verse 5. See, I see at least two confessions that define that immersion into the gospel. See, first, the gospel has nothing to do with who you are. That's an implication of the baptism. The gospel has nothing to do with who you are. Mark opens his book 
proclaiming that the gospel of Jesus is beginning. And how does he show the response of the Jews to that news? Here they are coming to be baptized in the Jordan. What's the point? The point is absolute and unadulterated scandal. That's the point. This would have been all over the news in the Jewish world. The children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, children of the heritage given to them by their birthright as the nation of Israel are now rejecting that heritage in order to follow Jesus. So you understand that that is exactly the implication here. That's exactly what's happening. To be baptized by John is to be immersed in the water and brought back out again. It's a picture of recreation. To be brought out of the water and more to the identity, a rejection of the identification with those who crossed the Jordan initially in the book of Joshua entering the promised land. See, when God gave his people the promised land in the book of Joshua, he had them cross the Jordan River, this very river that that John the Baptist is baptizing in. And he had them cross it at flood stage. It was their identification into the nation of God. He parted the water so that they could enter. But what was happening was that they were entering the water, being put under it and then pulled back out of it again as the people of God baptized as a new people, recreated and regenerated as the people of God. It's the same picture as creation over again. When Genesis says that God made all things in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And the spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. What's that mean? Surface of the deep. Well, the Bible is not a science book. It's a spiritual picture and a historical reality that God made creation from the waters, baptizing it from the surface of the deep. And so when he brings the people to the promised land across the Jordan, he's bringing them up out of the waters in the same way as a new creation. But just as Adam, the first man, could not hold on to his relationship with God, so could Israel not hold on to their relationship with God. Their hearts turned away from him in sin. And so John enters the scene in Mark chapter 1, calling them to be baptized, to be recreated out of their repentance and forgiveness of sins. These people must reject that identity as Jews, as the thing that makes them right with God. And they must turn to a new identity, one that's founded in Jesus, the one for whom John is preparing the way. Well, the Jews have always prided themselves on being the people of God by birth. Their father is Abraham. Therefore, they think they're right with God. And here's some Jews come to be baptized and they're renouncing that heritage as the thing that joins them with God. Think of the scandal of this ministry. Well, it's no wonder the Pharisees didn't like John. He was undermining their authority before God. But the gospel of Jesus is scandalous because it means that anyone who puts their faith in it must reject all other claims of righteousness and identification with God. See, any identity posturing that we do must be turned from in order to turn toward the gospel. And that's a really hard thing to do, isn't it? 
Because as a culture, as people, really, we have never been more individualistic and identity driven. Take this article title that I saw this week as an example. The title of the article was what it's like to hike the Appalachian Trail as a transgender woman. I read that title and I thought, what does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with hiking? But we're so identity insane that we search for the identity that will give us some meaning, some shape for our life, something that we can build our world around. And it's not just those on the extremes, is it? We're all identity driven. It's at the core of our independence mindedness as Americans. If you take my freedom, I don't know what I'll do. We can't conceive of a life that doesn't have this level of freedom. That, that's an identity that we tend to baptize the gospel into. Or work can easily become our identity. It's why it's hard to separate yourself from your work. See, someone says, tell me about yourself and what's your first response? What do you go to? I'm a fill in your job. That's not who you are. That's the identity you clothe yourself with. But you wouldn't know how to tell someone about yourself if you weren't using your job as the identity. And the list goes on and on, doesn't it? We use family to identify ourselves. We use race. We use social position, the things that we own, perhaps, to define us. Those are things that we immerse ourselves in. And we drag those identities into pleasing God. We must reject Any identity that we think will gain us God's favor outside of that identity in Jesus. That's Mark's scandalous claim here. That means that you must reject the notion that you are right with God simply because you think you are. The gospel stands as all the evidence that you need that you are not born right with God. And an identity does not change that at least a worldly one. Your status as an American, because you grew up in the church, because you sit in a pew every Sunday, or maybe because you're spiritual, those things cannot make you right with God. Those are false identities that must be rejected in order to turn toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't reject those identities, Mark says, then the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be in its place. It's one or the other. The truth is, it's not that you must reject identity altogether. And it's not even that identity is a bad thing, per se. It's just that Jesus came to offer the greatest identity in the gospel. He came to offer that you would become a son of of the living God. And that identity is not baptized into you. You are baptized into that. Ships only float when they displace the proper amount of water. The gospel will not float if it does not displace who you think you are before God. If you're holding on to who you are, some identity, then you have baptized the gospel into you. The gospel has nothing to do with who you are. But second, the gospel has nothing to do with what you do. The gospel has nothing to do with what you do. 
<coughs> excuse me. Mark follows the trajectory of Jesus here. In Mark 1, he, he shows his baptism that identifies him as a true son of God. And then he follows his obedience, you'll notice, as he's tempted in the wilderness. We see that in verse 12. <clears throat> and this progression marks the progression of Israel and their wandering over 40 years. But where Israel failed to obey God, to remain obedient before God, Jesus succeeds. And the inverse example of the people failing then shows us that the gospel is not built upon what you do, but upon what Jesus has done. Mark says we must reject any notion that the gospel is baptized into our works or we lose the gospel on the whole. That's the implication. That's believing that somehow I earn God's favor. Now, sure, you probably wouldn't say it that way, that if I do this thing, I'll earn God's favor. He'll be pleased with me. But do you think that way? I do. Let me ask you a question and respond in your heart. How pleased is God with you right now? When God thinks of you, is he smiling at you? Or is he remembering that sin that you committed this morning? Is he thinking of all of the ways that you failed him this week? That opportunity that you had that you did not share the gospel? Your answer to those questions determines whether or not the gospel has been baptized into your works. If you think that you have to do something in order to earn God's favor, at least at some level, then the gospel is missing its mark in your heart. Because the gospel is the free work of Jesus, substituted for your work. That implies that your attempts to please God by your work are no good. That's what the Bible tells us. No one can please God by their works. None are righteous. And God demands a perfect righteousness. And because you can't hit the mark, you're owed the penalty of disobedience, which is death. But Jesus came with his perfect identity as a son of God, and he obeyed God's law perfectly. And then he died. He died the death that your sin and your disobedience owed, and he did it in your place. And he offered you life by faith if you believe in what he has done in your place. That's Jesus' work being put on in the place of yours. That's the free gift of God in the gospel. I got an email from a hotel chain recently. They promised me a free night at their hotel. It's good news. They were beckoning me to open the claim for that free night. And when I opened the email, it said that, that to get that free night, all I had to do was earn 3,000 points, whatever that means. Wait a minute, do I get the free night or do I have to earn it? Those aren't the same thing. Is your gospel truly a free gift? Or is the gospel more about you earning through your works? Is it a free gift after you do this much? If you have to earn it to make God pleased with you, that's a surefire sign that you're baptizing the gospel into your world. So how do I know if I'm baptizing the gospel into my works? 
Well, if you feel that you must obey all of God's commands perfectly as an earner, if you have to check yourself against some law constantly, it doesn't have to be God's law, by the way. It could be as simple as the, the laws of traffic, right? You pull up to a stoplight and you stop carefully on the line because you know that in that you'll be measured. And then you see someone in your rearview mirror and, and, and you know, oh, they're not going to be able to stop in time. And they zip through that stoplight and silently in your heart you judge that person. And you build a little bit of righteousness for yourself, saying, I'm not like them. I'm a good driver. You feel a little vindication in that moment, a little more righteous than that person. That's a sign that your gospel is baptized into your works, that you're trying to earn righteousness from somewhere else. Maybe it's a silly example, but do you ever judge others silently? Do you gossip aloud about others? That's a gospel of works displayed for you to see, trying to make yourself feel a little bit better, vindicating yourself before God. I'll tell you mine, and I've shared it with a few of you, and it probably seems silly, but it's true. Uh, I'm a worker. I I try to earn God's favor. I'm a nitpicky about the way that I preach. I I believe that I must word everything just so. And when I don't say things the way I want to say them, or things don't come out the way that I want them to, I'll beat myself up the rest of the day, the rest of the week. Actually, I can still remember stuff I've said from the pulpit years ago that I wish I hadn't said. Why do I do that? Why am I so critical? Well, intellectually, I know that God is the one who brings salvation, that he does the work of sanctification. But in my heart, I believe that I've got to earn it. That God won't smile at me unless I do something just right. That God will not be pleased with me in the mistakes or in anything less than perfection. Maybe you can't relate to that specifically, but maybe you're the the nitpicker who keeps everyone sharp around them. In that way, you're an earner. You've got to keep everyone punctual, keep everyone on time. You've got to make appearances just right. Or maybe you're the peacemaker who keeps everyone at bay. That's a sign of earning. The gospel has been baptized into your works. Can't be any disagreements. Make sure everyone's together all the time. Those are constructs of works. They're attempts to make what you do the center of the gospel. And they baptize the gospel into your world. The truth is that Jesus does require perfect obedience. That's true. But it's not your obedience that the gospel is baptized into, that you're immersed into. Rather, it's Jesus' obedience that's in view here. The obedience of Jesus in Mark proves that your obedience cannot be in view for the gospel to be successful. They simply cannot exist together. God cannot judge you on the basis of Jesus' perfect obedience and your obedience at the same time. If he did, he would not be a righteous God. And he is a righteous God. Jesus' obedience is what's in view. If it was about your obedience, then the gospel would be built upon two kings and not one. The gospel has nothing to do with what you do, but everything to do with who Jesus is 
and what he's done. So has the gospel been Chuck Norris? Has it been Jacob Hansen? Fill in your name. Is the gospel baptized into your world? Because the gospel shows us that you need to be baptized into the gospel. You are baptized into the gospel. That's such an important distinction. That you would be transformed by the gospel and not the other way around. If we believe that the gospel is what it claims to be, namely the victory of Jesus Christ over our ancient enemy, over all of sin and death, then being shifted or moved by that is definitely an order. Wouldn't you agree? But what does that look like? Well, the gospel has nothing to do with who you are or what you do. But Mark shows us that it has everything to do with who you follow. Everything to do with who you follow. And the gospel is about following Jesus. Are you following? Consider, because of the gospel, Jesus is able and willing to call a people to himself. In verse 16, just after Jesus is prophesied by John and shown to be the chosen one of God in baptism, after he successfully endures the temptation, showing himself to be obedient before God in the wilderness, Thus accomplishing what Israel and you and I fail to do, Jesus walks by the sea and calls for himself disciples. A disciple is just a follower. It's one who will live in his kingdom as his subject. The gospel victory makes it possible for a people to be called to follow Jesus. Someone who will go with Jesus and be made like him degree by degree. See, if you miss the first part, If the gospel is baptized into you, you cannot be a follower. If you baptize the gospel into yourself, you must be the leader and you're not following Jesus. Because of Jesus' perfection, he has the right to call you as the victorious gospel king. The gospel is the victory of Jesus, making a new man. See, all of scripture points to this. That's what we've been seeing in the psalm series we've been going through in Sunday school, that all scripture points to the victory of our king, and we've been looking at that through the psalms. Uh, Come join us. We have one more here in a couple weeks. Uh, He makes a new people to follow him. Take, for example, Psalm 127, which says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, The watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb are reward. Seems like a strange pairing on the surface. And certainly it's been used to say that children are a blessing, and they are. But a deeper reality that this psalm is communicating to us is what's in view in the gospel. Is that the fulfillment of the mandate to fill the earth is accomplished in our king. That Jesus, because of his perfect obedience, he has toiled in our place. He has accomplished victory in his obedience, in his identity as the true son of God. And he makes a heritage, children for God. Jesus fulfills the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. All of scripture points to Jesus' role 
as the maker of a nation. And the gospel makes you who you need to be, one in the lineage and the heritage of Christ, called by him. Think of the implications of that fact, that the gospel makes you who you need to be by the call of Jesus. That means that you cannot be too sinful to be called by God. That means that there is no sin, no wickedness that the gospel cannot reach. And on the contrary, it means that there is no righteousness that is so great that you have no need of the gospel. Because there is one man who has accomplished all that is needed for the gospel to take root, and it is Jesus. All who are accepted by God are accepted by the work of Jesus. If you are a sinner this morning, and you are, Jesus' obedience is for you. And it calls you to be baptized into it. Mark reveals that the gospel is the victory of Jesus that results in a people being called to follow him. Have you been baptized into that gospel victory of Jesus? Or is that gospel baptized into you? Don't walk out of here today with a false impression of the gospel as a a flimsy victory, as, as one that doesn't have any power to bring real change. But view it as the victory of Jesus, as the power of God unto salvation. Immerse yourself in that reality. That's not a call to works, nor a call to put on some kind of identity, but it's a call to fall back into the loving arms of God who has restored you by the work of his son. And then watch how it transforms your identity and your working as you try to please God. Jesus' victory is a sure one for his people. Mark concludes chapter 1, if you'll notice, starting in verse 40, by showing the mercy of Jesus before a leper. An unclean person who the culture is not to have contact with. They're not even to touch them because they are defiled. They are so broken that they cannot be among the people. Well, sin can cause us to feel that way. And sin can make us that way before God. We are unclean in our sin and shame. But the gospel cleanses us and its king is a merciful one. Jesus touched the unclean leper. And rather than becoming unclean, the work of Jesus cleanses the leper. Cry out to Jesus this morning. Be immersed in his gospel. And find him the merciful cleanser of the defiled. Father, thank you for your gospel. The gospel that is of your will, accomplished by the work of Jesus, and then given to us through the application of your spirit. Father, would you cause us to put away anything that we would baptize into your gospel, to reject any notion that we can bring anything to the table, but to fall fully on the incredible grace that is found in Jesus. Let that be our hope and our direction this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.